Hello, welcome to the full unedited version. Well, apart from, obviously, there are some edits because of things that we said which just are not apparently acceptable in any form of human society. But predominantly unedited version of Josie and Robin's Book Shambles. Hello, welcome to Book Shambles. A quick reminder that you can support the show on Patreon, patreon.com slash bookshambles, where there's lots of great rewards and extended episodes and bonus episodes and tote bags and a book club and behind-the-scenes stuff, all manner of amazing things uh, for for pledging, which starts at just $1 an episode, and you'll only ever get charged for three episodes per month. So you're never going to pay more than $3 a month. It helps us keep the podcast running and you get extra bonus stuff for it so that's nice for everyone involved and in case you missed it we've got a book shambles live event coming up on may 4th at king's place in london it's the london launch of dean burnett's new book the happy brain it's a follow-up to his huge international bestseller the idiot brain uh dean will be in conversation with robin ince at king's place tickets from their site and also from cosmic shambles dot com slash events slash happy brain sorry i forgot the url for a second there and there are still some tickets available for our shows at albert hall as well the book shambles shows there with our guests lucy green and adam buxton and some other people we yet to announce and the main show space shambles in the in the main hall with uh astro apollo astronaut rusty schweikart and chris hadfield and robin and jim el khalili and festival the spoken nerd and lots of amazing guests uh that we're probably not going to announce actually or maybe we will maybe we'll say a few who knows uh so royal albert hall website for all that information and now here is this week's episode robin and josie with richard holloway we'll start we might as well start now and just say welcome to uh, josie and robin's book shambles josie's running late and uh so uh, for a very short period of time hopefully it is merely uh uh robin's uh, book shambles and uh i'm joined by someone who i was talking with last night at a bookshop event uh richard holloway author of uh, well I could mention all your books but that would fit it's in remarkable the number of, of, of books you've written but in, in, in the last 17 18 years uh, books such as uh, Godless Morality uh, Between the Monster and the Saint and the most recent one which is uh, Waiting for the Last Bus which is a book about really ageing and our approaches to death and I wanted to start off by asking you because because we, we did record, I'll just tell listeners, we recorded the whole of last night's conversation. So there may be things that we don't touch on at all today uh, just to avoid clashes of, of thoughts. But your first chapter is a lot about the ideas of memento mori and how much death was around us. In fact, there was, it reminded me of there's a, a lovely Australian comedian called Sam Simmons who uh, in one of his shows he picked up a, a picture, a, a book of uh, cats which is just called something like Beautiful Kittens. And it's a book from 1975 and he said... This is now just a book of dead cats. And I thought that's striking. And you have moments where you talk about the skeleton, as it's saying, you know, as I am now, you will be. And Yes, yes, yes. I mean, I started the book, um, or the idea for the book, in uh, St Mary Magdalene's Parish Church in, in the Nottinghamshire city, uh, town, I suppose it is, of Newark. Um, uh, I was trained at Kellam Theological College um, a few miles away. Uh, an Anglican monastery, uh, and I've I've been compulsively going back there for some reason. It's no longer what it was when it trained me. It's now a, a very lovely upmarket hotel. And uh, I started about 15 years ago going back and standing in the monk's graveyard there and looking at all the gravestones and 
uh, reading the names of all these old guys who who taught me, were kind to me. Um, uh, when I was there, uh, in I went there in '48, um, and kept going back uh, and wondered uh, whether I would ever stop. And I went back a couple of years ago in a lovely, lovely September day. My daughter came up from London to join me. Um, and on the way back, something healed in me that day. There was a big Asian wedding going on, and they used the chapel where I'd kind of tried to give myself away to God. They turned it into a, a temple to the lovely elephant god Ganesh, uh, and 500 uh, beautifully, colorfully dressed um, British um, Asians there. And something lifted in me, Some, something shifted. I recognized that it was over. I could move on. Um, uh, that past was over and done. And on my way back into the station to catch the train back to Edinburgh, I popped into St. Mary Magdalene's Church, which I'd never been in before, although I've, I've been associated with Kellam since 1948. And they have a chantry chapel in there. Uh, in in the, the Middle Ages, uh, one of the things that the church believed in was that souls who were neither good enough for heaven or bad enough for hell went to a moral laundromat called Purgatory, where, where they got cleaned up in order to get into heaven. And you could help the souls go through Purgatory by saying masses for them, by singing masses for them in chantry chapels. And on the wall of this little chantry chapel in this 15th century magnificent parish church in the middle of that market town in Nottinghamshire, there's a thing that was famous in the Middle Ages called the Dance of Death, and it, it showed a couple of figures. Um, uh, one is a, a well-dressed young man with a purse full of money, the other is a skeleton, and the motto is, as I am today, the skeleton is saying, you will be tomorrow. Um, and it, it kind of got me thinking about the, the difference in the way religion, Christianity in Britain, prepared people for death, um, sometimes in a rather hideous and horrifying way, um, but nevertheless with a kind of reality about face, this is coming to you as I am today, you will be tomorrow, uh, you will end up as a skeleton. And it seems to me that in our culture, partly maybe because of, of the, the fading of religion, uh, we've moved into a way of looking at death that rather than addressing it as is in flight from it. Um, and so I was prompted to, to think about my own attitudes to death, the way we've medicalized dying. It used to be run by priests, now it's run by doctors. And so I just I kind of mused my way through my own thinking about it. As, uh, I'm an old man now, 84. I've noticed the decay and change in my own body. Um, inevitably, I can't have, at maximum, I can't have more than five years, and who knows. Um, so it got me um, thinking about it, and I called the wee book Waiting for the Last Bus. Now, just for people who may not be that aware of kind of the, the, the history of your life, and, and because we're talking about churches, 
To me, it's very interesting that you you mentioned. I can't remember if it's in this book or in a, no, it's in in your your autobiography, leaving for Alexandria, where you uh, talk about um, that the the bishop that you became because you were bishop of Edinburgh uh, was exactly the kind of bishop the thirty year old priest you were would have despised. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. your this book covers some of it, and your other works have often talked about this, which is you had a journey which is away from traditional religion that that you were in fact looking at some of your book titles from 1972 they are very different i imagine in content to the books that you were writing yeah, in 2002 yeah, yeah, and yeah. i just could you explain a little bit about where you lost the the faith in what you hoped religion would give you and other people i always held it in a kind of um dialectical way i mean i i keep saying to people the opposite of faith is not doubt it's certainty um, you don't need faith. Uh, you don't believe in the two times table. You can do it in your fingers. Um, uh, you can't know for certain whether there is ultimate meaning to life, whether there is that mysterious reality that we call God, some kind of ultimate creative intelligence. There's no way we can demonstrate that um, because the only agency we have to deal with it is our own mind, and we can't get out of our own mind, and we know our mind does funny things. And in my my life in religion, I handled the God thing quite... I mean, I, I was never very good at arguing for the existence of God, but I saw uh, the religious life as a kind of romantic gesture. I'm going to put my bet my life, my shirt, on the possibility of this ultimate loving meaning, which is how I wanted to understand it, this great wounded love that somehow was wrestling with, with a very damaged world. Um, and as a wee romantic boy, I wanted to give myself away to this big thing and serve people in the name of that wounded love. Um, what happened over the years, and I ended up as a bishop. In fact, I ended up, I said in my final sermon um, uh, as bishop, that I ended up in my 60s as the kind of bishop I hated in my 30s. Because in my 30s, I was, I suppose, like a lot of people who... I wasn't handling my own inner doubts well, and you can always tell someone who's struggling with inner doubt because one of the symptoms is an overt external certainty. Um, uh, there's a famous story about uh, a, a, a guy whose, whose sermons were left uh, and his wife suggested, he was a vicar, his wife suggested, let, let, let's publish all the sermons, so gave them to a publisher. Um, uh, they wouldn't sell nowadays. And all the way down the margins, they would see AWS written. And so the editor said to the wife, what does that mean? And she said, oh, that means argument weak, shout. And <laughs> the, 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 there is a sense in which you get shouty people. They may be shouting against gay people, because they're denying their own inner gay reality, we know that phenomenon. And I think that, I think that 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 as a young priest, a lot of my fierce conservatism was a covering up of the fact that I wasn't certain about things. And what's happened to me over the years is I've become comfortable with uncertainty. But the thing that tipped me out of the church for a bit, and I'm now in the church but on the edge, uncomfortably was the church's attitude towards gay people. I mean, the, every every 10 years, all Anglican bishops meet in a thing called the Lambeth Conference, not at Lambeth, now in Canterbury. And in 1998, um, 
The hot topic was whether we could rethink our whole attitude towards gay sexuality, gay priesthood and all of that. And it turned into an ugly rout. Um, uh, it, it, it just was cruel and something died in me. I felt a, a religion that provokes not disagreement because you can disagree about the status of gay people, but that provokes cruelty and passion and a desire to hurt. There's something diseased about it, so I had to, I had to kind of leave it for a bit, and I kind of limped back into a different version. So now I'm a very agnostic, unbelieving, uncertain Christian. But I think I think uncertainty is a compassionate response to most human predicaments. Certainty is a killer. And with that. Please welcome the very certain Hi. dogmatic co-host Josie Long. Hiya. Yeah, I'm, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm sorry to listen. Well, don't worry, they listen. don't know you're late. But what I, I did watch, I, I was watching through the screen because I didn't want to just come in and be like, "Hi, sorry." <laughs> <laughs> so I was just enjoying it. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I, I was thinking, well, like, I don't know how to start joining in with the conversation. Just join like, in. Well, I've been thinking a lot about um, how. So I'm only like, um going to be 36 in a month and how much more I'm fond is the wrong word but inclined to be like well this is complicated as a response to things as opposed to like well I'll tell you it's this you know and I'm finding myself more and more just being like well this is very complicated but I also think that it doesn't, uh, maybe, the, I think the words preclude, it doesn't, oh God, my brain, sorry, this, um, there's a, a carrying a child. Um, <laughs> yeah, so any, any any previous listeners will know that there is a kind of a sound of a gesture where Josie can't find a word <laughs> and goes and points towards her belly. Oh, it's a nightmare. I wish it? I had such, I can point towards my belly when I can't find a word. <laughs> Different reasons. You need a parrot that keeps you up all night and you could be oh, like, if it wasn't yeah. for this parrot. Don't yeah, say that. Yeah, my dad yeah. actually, last night I was staying with my dad and he has an African grey parrot that does That's all it. the Impressions, really? yeah. God. And there's there's that lovely story about um, Ken Campbell uh, when uh, Ken Campbell, the great uh, theatrical impresario and autodidact, where he he talked to uh, his his uh, daughter Daisy, said, "Dad, you've got to get a proper computer. I'll give you some money." And uh, it gave the money and it came out. I've got something much better. Look, I've got the, the parrot. There's something much better than a computer. So that's and the parrot's still around. And I think sometimes still does impersonations of Ken. Uh, the parrot is better than a computer. It's the same kind of thing as social media. It's just like shouting at you. There's, there's something frightening beautiful. about it though, as well, because I sometimes think that when my dad does die, there will be a parrot left that does his voice. And this, and I, and I think that this, because it does all of the, you know, it, it was interesting that the, the difference, because it, it drops some of them. So a lot of the ones now, because my mum is no longer around, it doesn't do some of the, but it will, it will do the calling for the dog. Poor dog, the dog confused the whole time oh. because my dad would dark, dark, and then later on that day, the parrot dark, dark, and it's basically the same voice. <laughs> oh. And the dog goes, I still haven't really got <laughs> probably the... having a canine nervous breakdown. Yeah. Like, yeah, it always has yeah. a biscuit yeah. afterwards yeah. just yeah. to make yeah. sure that he's happy with that. <laughs> yeah. I find just as moving um, when someone dies is accidentally um, phoning them up and hearing the voice <gasps> message. Phone. Yeah, mm. yeah. It's so, and also yeah. then you want to leave a message as well. Mm. It's really mm. hard mm. not to be yeah. like, well, I know this is silly, but yeah. I am yes. just chatting yeah. to you. Yes. Yeah. Mm. My I'd... niece kept her um, 
I don't know how long the the the, the kept the account of because uh, she was quite young when my uh, brother-in-law died, but she kept the account so she could ring up and just hear her dad mm-hmm. doing the outgoing message. And it's funny, isn't it? Technology gives you these strange things, like with things like social media, you suddenly find the you know someone even just leaves it. Oh, traffic on the M40 is terrible. And then that that, that was the, the case of uh, a, 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 a comedian who died a few years ago, and. And then he just died in his sleep. And so it's literally, you, you go straight from the stress of the gig and trying to get mm, home from the mm, gig. Mm, and mm. then it turns out that was, that's... That was, the, the, those are the, the final words mm. that you get. Yeah, I know. I, I know. once made a really joking tweet about Anne Rand, where I was oh. like, where I said, oh, if she's so great, why is she dead? I'm alive. <laughs> it's better. She should be alive. Because obviously she's really like, if you're, if you're clever, you shouldn't be poor. And it's like, that's not really how it goes. And so I made that joke. And then I thought, oh, gosh, like if this is the last thing I ever put online, it will be very ironic <laughs> that I'm like bragging about being alive. Um, but luckily. But she being dead yet speaketh through lots of monstrous political figures. <laughs> know, terrifying. Mm. So mm. then she's having the last laugh because yeah. nobody's going to be like well of yeah. course as yeah. Josie Long tweeted in 2017 yeah, yeah. <laughs> there's a lovely cartoon book which I think we've recommended before by a guy called Daryl Cunningham who just these, he did the first book that I had of his was called Psychiatric Tales he was a psychiatric nurse who then also ended up having a period of time where he had something of a breakdown and then he wrote this book called Super Crash which is a wonderful cartoon guide into the delightful hypocrisies of Ayn Rand, and is a very quick for those who, for those who are ever thinking that they might read the Fountainhead, please read this cartoon book first. It may well save you an enormous amount of time. <laughs> um, I want to talk about. Well, actually, I was. Who's your favourite? Because when you were mentioning about sometimes the the the, the, the loosening or, or indeed loss of faith, I, I, certain vicars from popular culture. Two of my favourites are uh, Winter Light, the Ingmar Bergman film. I don't know if you've ever seen that. Uh, is... kind of, years ago, but can't remember it. He, he's, yeah, he loses yeah, his, yeah, his, yeah. his faith and he can't give... And mm. the other one is Robert Donat in a film called uh, Lease for Life, in which he's a country vicar that things have never really... He's, never, he's not much of a oh. vicar, but he then has to go and t- do his sermon in the cathedral. And he does much against his wife's... In, in the end, oh. she comes round to, to realising why, but rather than do the, the sermon that will... Im- impressed that he's written yeah. it comes from the heart yes, and he does this yes. beautiful Aww. sermon and uh, then for a while is kind yeah, of you know yeah, shunned yeah. for it that's a beautiful film uh, i think my probably my favorite's not the right word but the priest that had most impact on me in literature is the the spoiled whiskey priest priest in graham green's the power and the glory um uh, who is a broken priest, um, and some of the holiest men I've known have been broken priests in touch with their um, their sexuality, their alcoholism, but somehow broken and, and mediating a kind of grace. And of course, the the the, the power and the glory. He he's he's um, it's it's during the kind of Mexican Revolution. He ends as a kind of martyr, um, and he's no longer really able to to celebrate mass officially but but they call upon him to celebrate mass for the wounded the other the other people who are being persecuted and i like i know graham was a, a, a graham green was a, a, a weird old figure in many ways but i think he caught an aspect of christianity that's deeply moving to me the idea that it's really a religion either for saints or for sinners it's not for the respectable. It's not for the the people who are who are together. It's for 
absolutely given away people who don't think about themselves or it's for people who are so broken um, that they need grace. Um, and I think that because I get that in Jesus, the people that surrounded Jesus were the outcasts and the sinners, not the paid-up members of the religious establishment. And I think that there is still that in Christianity that touches me deeply. And in my own experience um, of receiving grace and understanding and people who listened to me over the years, looking back, I can see a lot of them were gay priests in a church that couldn't affirm their nature, their human nature. And it was because of that brokenness and being in touch with their unacceptableness that they mediated something of the grace of Jesus to me. Um, and that's why I particularly hated it when they became the objects of this kind of hate campaign. And we've only recently, we're, we're closer to, to fixing it. The Scottish Episcopal Church has now passed gay marriage, um, and that's over. It hasn't happened in England yet. It will. These things, But it's so ungracious, it seems to me, of organized religion when it's always behind the curve in these lovely emancipatory movements. We were, it took us 2,000 years to get around to emancipating women, for God's sake. We only did that five minutes ago. So I think that what we've got, a, uh, what in a sense damaged my relationship with Christianity was the way it operated as a power institution in an oppressive way. I don't mind if it believes strange things. I don't mind people who believe strange things as long as they don't, the beliefs don't make them cruel. Mm -hmm. And it may be that believing strange things can make some people kinder. So I hate those who knock religion because it's unscientific, and I hate um, the people who, who preach a kind of hard-edged, cruel religion. Um, and so it's left me in, a, in an awkward, uncomfortable position, still a religious person, but very wary of religion. But then I'm wary of all human institutions because we have a great capacity for making a mess of stuff. Well, I wanted to talk about uh, one, of, one of the books, I think towards the end of last night's uh, uh, conversation, uh, that we were talking the other day about things like the Holocaust because of jokes that have been made about it and I think that sometimes the jokes that are made about it are things that make it mundane and can make it banal and lose the power and we've also briefly, I've just been reading, if anyone hasn't read this, we've talked about this before, but Victor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning is is a, an incredible book about what it takes for a human being to survive in the very worst of situations he was in in, in Auschwitz and you read from a short piece from a book which is about a group of children and uh, and a, a, a man who on their on their journey to it is it is actually Auschwitz, isn't it? In, yes, in yeah. It it it's called it's a it's a famous novel, um, a Holocaust novel called The Last of the Just by Andre Schwartzbart, French, published in French, won the Prix Goncourt way back when, um, and it's the story of a just man in Jewish tradition uh, called Ernie Levy, who through the ages carries the pain of the world. He's a kind of suffering servant figure in a way. Um, and at the end of the novel, his, his final manifestation is as Ernie Levy. And the final scene in the novel, he's in a boxcar uh, filled with um, dead and dying children on their way to Auschwitz. Um, and I read it first, I guess, about 40 years ago, and I've read it repeatedly ever since, almost as a kind of spiritual discipline. Um, and the bit I quote in, and I've quoted it in a number of books, it's, it's become a scripture for me. It's become canonical, the way great poems and great bits of the Bible are. 
They have a kind of intrinsic authority. They speak a truth to you, a terrifying truth. And in in this final scene at the end of this remarkable novel, Ernie Levy is in this boxcar, and he's got a dead child in his, on his lap, um, and a little girl says to him, he was my brother. And he, he then says, um, this journey we're going on, it'll take us to your parents, we'll meet them in Jerusalem. Um, and you'll never be hungry again, and you'll never be cold again. And then the little dying children, they all pipe up, uh, and, and we'll never be beaten with rifle butts again. And, there will be, uh, and, and a woman shakes his knee, also in the box cart, and she says to him, you know that's not true. You know, how can you tell them? And he says, there is no room for truth here. And it's absolutely true that there are situations so horrible that only a consoling lie is the appropriate gesture. Um, and, uh, oh, God, the, the book does devils... And, and they, they get to Auschwitz. They're told by um, uh, 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 an SS guard um, that they're going to clean them up. They're giving them bars of soap. They're going in. They want to, they've got to scrub themselves clean, and then they're going to get clean clothes and going to be looked after. And they push them in, into, into the gas chamber, uh, and the lights go out. Um, and he hears the hiss of the cyclone B gas. And he says, Breathe deeply, my lambs, and quickly, because he wants them to. That's his final mercy to these kids. And when you read a thing like that, I mean, the Holocaust is probably the most monstrous evil of the 20th century, but it's emblematic of what we do to each other. Um, in the name of certainties, you know, racist certainties, theological certainties. Um, and I've, I've always derived a kind of softness f- towards forms of belief that are not true but are consoling and have a kind of passionate truth in them because, I mean, if you're ministering to a dying child, for instance, you can't say, well, your life's over, dearie, you know, you've got 10 years of it, we're never going to see you again, um, you're never going to... You have to say something to lift the child up. And it's not, it's not a kind of deceit, it, it, it's what humans do to cuddle each other. Um, and that's a very important scripture for me, and there have been others like it as well. So one of the things I'm most offended by are people who are certain of their atheism and that there's nothing beyond, and you have to take it on the chin, because it seems to me we need our consoling stories. And one of the things that religion's been good at has been defying the finality of death. It's had good tunes to sing against it, and it's had great stories. And that, to me, is something that I I, I mentioned. I had a a public conversation with Richard Dawkins at the Edinburgh Science Festival a few years ago, and I told that story, and I said, what would you have done, Richard? He said the same. Can I ask, uh, there was a story you told yesterday, and I hope you don't mind repeating, which is you talked about, in terms of a good death, you talked about the... um, AIDS hospice in mm. Edinburgh in the mm. early 90s. Mm-hmm. And there were a couple of stories where you just, uh, which I thought were very fascinating and very beautiful mm. about mm-hmm. what people gave to those who, who, who were dying. Yeah. AIDS was a, was a big thing in Edinburgh um, in the late 80s. Um, it was mainly the intravenous drug-using community, um, some of the gay community, <clears throat> um, 
And I came back to Edinburgh in 1986. I'd been away for six years. And it was called the AIDS capital of Europe. Um, and um, it provoked all the usual responses. Um, uh, certain kinds of mad evangelical Christian voices said it was God's punishment, you know, that... that, that um, uh, that God had had created a particular virus targeted at gay people. I remember, I well, why doesn't He target something at arms dealers or something like that? No, it, it's always about sex and all of that kind of thing. But that wasn't the only response. The churches, the medical community, um, the, the Edinburgh just rose to the occasion and handled it very well. And I was the bishop of Edinburgh at the time, and um, we started a hospice um, milestone house. And I appointed a remarkable um, woman priest called Jane Millard to be, um, in a sense, the Diocese of Edinburgh's chaplain to people with AIDS. Um, and she became an extraordinary kind of priest to them. Uh, she buried most of them. Um, she, she lay beside many of them actually dying, um, and she helped a lot of them die. She wrote... Uh, a series of little on, scribbled on the back of envelopes uh, called uh, uh, Lessons from the Watch, she called them. Uh, and I put some of them in, in my memoir, Leaving Alexandria. Um, and she, she told me about one young man um, who had been a keen horse rider. He'd loved um, riding horses. Uh, and he, he, was, he was on the point, and she would talk them into their death. And the way she got him out of it was she said um, that you're on your horse, you're galloping through a lovely wood, a grassy path, you're getting up to speed, and just ahead of you there's a large, complicated fence, and you're going to leap over it, and you lift the horse up, and you go over it, and he died. She rode him into death, um, uh, she told another story about um, a young woman drug addict um, who was very afraid of death. Um, she said, he'll hate me because of the mess I made of my life and he'll punish me. Um, and she lay in bed beside her and she told the story of the prodigal son. And she said, tell me it again. And then she died. Uh, and... Uh, I was in. I didn't have the kind of pastoral patience for that kind of ministry. I'm, and I did. I sat beside the, the dying and, and visited the sick and all of that. But she had a preternatural capacity for unselfing herself and just being towards the others. She would spend hours there. With me, the meter would always be running. I'd try to do it, but there was a, a wee sense of strain. For Jane, she disappeared, and she was just there for them. Um, and in religious ministry and priestly ministry, there are cases like that of people who are so who are so just not there for themselves that they're utterly poured out for the other. Um, and I've seen that. I've seen the horrible side of religion, but I've also seen that absolute grace, um, and that's what keeps me as a kind of funny, weird, complicated believer, I guess. Mm. You write, um, all your books have a, a, a lot of, or certainly the books of the last 20 years have a lot of poetry in them. 
and it seems that you you talk about the fact of there's that that lovely line that sometimes that those who still uh, preach the prose of of, mm, uh, of the mm, Bible allow mm, those mm. who have lost the prose to at least still have the poetry. Yeah. Also, and, like so much. Oh, sorry. No, no, no. But, but so much of kind of like the things that you're talking about, like the beauty and the um, joy and kind of the added dimension that like spirituality can add to your life is about art and mm, mm, about creativity and about that kind of you know it's not the sermon it's the songs yes, or something yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, or it's like yeah something yeah, like yeah, that yeah. Sorry, my brain is so slow. I just wanted to join yeah. in there. No, you're absolutely right. And I think in many ways, I mean, I think religion is a work of art. I mean, I think that, that the scriptures are works of human imagination. They're humanity wrestling with meaning. I mean, we are weird creatures, we humans. Unlike the other animals, as far as we can tell, who don't seem to puzzle, they seem to live natural lives. It's hard to figure the spiritual life of the other creatures on the planet, but they don't seem to be as creative as we are. They don't seem to agonize. They don't seem to be an object of interest to themselves, whereas we are. We wonder where we came from, where the universe came from, whether it means anything, whether it's ultimately meaningless. And it would be odd if a meaningless universe generated creatures with a passion for meaning. That's what keeps me on this kind of edge all the time um, uh, and I, I think that religion is at its best when it doesn't try to do the mansplaining thing you know this <laughs> te- let me tell you what it means but when it sings and paints pictures and builds magnificent cathedrals that haunt you with a, the possibility of transcendence touches all of that stuff and that's why for me in dying um, it, music will be important um, and certainly it, the, the mass will be held after I die or the service will be held. Um, I, I hope there'll be some good tunes that will be stronger than death. I'll, I'll be gone, I know that. But at least we can defy um, death that, that's taken yet another person legitimately because I've got to die, we've all got to die. But nevertheless, you can, you can allow it but still think there are stronger things than you. Um, and um, uh, I... I was on, I don't know whether I can mention this, but I was on Start the Week and and one of the other participants in the discussion talked about groups that actually um, will come and sing to the dying. Um, I want them to come to sing to me and the song I want them to sing is The Day the Music Died. (laughs) But wouldn't it be a worry if, see, this is where I'm too neurotic, where I'd be like, they come to sing to me. And what if they sing a song that you really don't like that people think you like, but you're too weak to say, yeah. oh, excuse me, please, yeah, yeah. would you sing another song? So the last thing you hear is like... I'm loving angels. Oh, no. I was never... I wasn't... I, wasn't, I, I, I remember the, uh, the, the one of the first documentaries about someone who was uh, who was dying from AIDS was Patty Caldwell. I don't know if you remember her presenter. She did this incredible documentary. It must have been late 80s, maybe early 90s. And I remember he wanted the whole thing to end in the crematorium with, I think it was something like, there's no business like no business. And and then as he, he was trying to see if they could get a coffin, which just as it went through the curtains, then a little silver glittered hand would give a little wave, a oh, little wow. kind of half a jazz hand. Of, uh... See, I admire that kind of yeah. um, lightness mm, because yeah. I want to take myself seriously, you know, mm, and, and mm, people mm. who are kind of able to laugh in the face of it in yeah. such a like yeah. cool yeah. way. Yeah. Mm, so impressive. Yeah. Have, have you heard yeah. D- Doug Stanhope? I don't know if you know American comedian Doug Stanhope and... Uh, his mother, uh, when she was, di- she basically decided when she wanted to die, 
and and he said he'd kind of you know j- just be there and mm-hmm. she was uh, she was uh, um, very ill and uh, and he said as long as it's not Sunday or Monday because they're football games so you can't do it then <laughs> and and then she was basically she decided she would drink white Russians she she I think she'd stopped drinking but she thought it's my last yeah. night so I'll fall off <laughs> and white Russians would be a good idea because that'll help line the stomach for I think it was morphine that she was going to take she worked out she had enough in fact he then said that he'd worked out that she had more than enough and wouldn't it be if she just went up to the the, the correct amount to kill herself and then they could keep the rest for themselves <laughs> and um, and there was a bit where so he he was basically the bartender he was there just mixing up the white russians mm. and uh, what's in a white russian i, I don't know milk what... and vodka ah, okay. i don't think there's anything sure. else is that it oh, right because i know that uh, maybe oh. it's got Kahlua as well because no, i know must have some yeah. wouldn't it just mm. coke but it wouldn't line the stomach a bit yeah yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, and apparently she was slopping them back, like just really. <laughs> and he, and he kind of, I think he might have said, "Mum," and, and she went, um, "I think it's something like um, sometimes it's a time to be dignified, and sometimes it's a time to be a pig." <laughs> and and then he said, "The trouble with Mum was she was the someone who if she said a funny joke, then had to keep repeating it." And I was desperate to stop her and go, "That's the best last line. Don't say anything more." <laughs> oh no, you, those were going to be your last words. But that's the other thing. You can't be too serious about the idea of what you'd want to leave the world because you might well say like and in kindness I have found the only refuge of life and then be like and now it's time for me to go and then the last thing he says could you just pass me that orange juice (laughs) or something and then you have to be Oliver Sacks lovely book um uh, his brother, who'd had quite a troubled uh, history of mental illness, his his last words were, I'm just going outside for a cigarette. (laughs) John Le Measurers I like. He's a lovely little book. His book, An Actor's Life, just about John Mitchell. Oh. And mm. his was just, it's all been rather lovely. Oh, yeah. oh, <laughs> oh God, yes. Such yes. a beautiful way of yeah, like... Yeah, 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 yeah. There's also Paul Eddington, who was a, a Quaker, I think, Paul Eddington. Yes. Yeah. And, and he, there was a lovely bit... That, I'm going to misquote <laughs> this as well, so I apologise to everyone. Always, As you, everyone knows listening to this, always double-check. We've given <laughs> you enough clues to actually find the correct <laughs> quotation, though we haven't given it to you correctly. But I remember him being interviewed when he was very ill and the cancer was very apparent mm-hmm. on, on, on his mm-hmm. face. And uh, it was the when Jeremy Isaacs took over doing face to face when they brought that back the John Freeman show and uh, it, it said how would you like to be remembered and he said um, uh, he, he didn't do too much harm mm. and he said that was and that mm. seems to mm. come mm. in quite a lot with again yeah. a lot yeah. of what yeah. you write yeah. which is yeah. try and don't try yeah. and leave too yeah. much harm behind yes yeah yeah don't do harm don't yes and a lot of our harming is pretty thoughtless um, and it's probably because we're not in touch with our own fears and needs, um, which is one reason why I think that death gives us an opportunity to do a bit of self-reflection, try and understand the kind of person you were. It's better to get it done while you're going through it. I mean, I quote Kierkegaard, we live our lives forward, but we understand our lives backward. Um, and I like, I like the trope of the stranger that we are gradually, be, gradually befriending the stranger that we didn't befriend, the real inner, the real me. Um, and I, I quote Derek Walcott. Um, oh, give, that poem. Yeah, give bread, give wine to the stranger who is yourself, you know, all of that kind of stuff. Um, and I think a lot of people, they don't know who they are, and, and it's kind of sad to, to die not knowing. Well, they're scared of who they are. I they're guess, scared that yes. if they found out, yeah, I know, it wouldn't I be. Know. Yeah. I th- 
Yeah. Especially if you're kind of disappointed anyway that you didn't. I mean, I know I spent all because I, I wanted to be an immaculate celibate monk um, who never thought of himself and gave his life away in a, a grand gesture. Um, and it never worked out like that because I, I could never get rid of the self I wanted to give away. Um, but it kind of trapped me for quite a long time into trying to be something I wasn't instead of maybe befriending who I was and learning how to use that. I kind of did learn um, slowly over the years, but I think a lot of us, especially if we've, if we've got a kind of passionate idealism about the kind of heroic figures we'd like to be, uh, and uh, we're filled with regret that we that we weren't that, and so we we end up not loving our neighbour as ourselves because we are our own neighbour. One of the books that I go back to, I mean, it's a, it's a transcript, but you can see, I think Faber and Faber still do it, which is thinking about yourself and and towards the end, which is uh, you know Dennis Potter was a very difficult man, and uh, mm, but he's a, a lovely, very, lovely deathbed. Didn't well, he? well, that the blossom is blossom, yes, and that yes, one I saw yes. that when I was about twenty four, where where mm. uh, Melvin Bragg kind of says, you know, what do you see now? Is he knowing that he would be he was dying in in you know it would have been a few months. He was mm. sitting mm. there doing the interview. I think about six a.m. because it had to be mm. cold oh, because of the illness, and he was drinking a mixture of I think it might have been cream and 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 morphine every time the pain got bad. Mm. Wow. And he says sometimes I look out of the window and I see the blossom, and it's the blossomest blossom. Yeah, and but, I think that that is yeah, yeah. it's a but reminder he, to try and see the blossomest blossom as well before it's the last but time but he also in the same interview he also said a very profound thing he said for him religion was the wound not the bandage and and uh, so a lot of religionists are too quick to slap a bandage on these agonising questions yeah. we ask about ourselves and the meaning of life whereas uh, more and more in my own experience um, when I have a religious discussion I don't want to hear someone telling me the solution i want to hear how they're dealing with it how how the wound has afflicted them and how they handle it i, I don't want mansplaining religion splaining and there is you know uh, there's a, the, a lot of that goes on um let me tell you why god uh, decided to take your 10 year old daughter i mean you 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 actually the, 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 i've 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 encountered people who've been told, you know, God loved us so much that he wanted her in heaven for him. What about my love for her? You know, so, and now that's a kind of panic, isn't it? It's, it's an insistence on explaining the inexplicable. And it's far better just to, just to rest in the uncertainty and to be, and to do no harm. Yeah, that, that, that's... It's like the Kurt Vonnegut quote, I know it every time, in, but that it's, we're here to help each other get through this thing, whatever it is. Yeah. Yeah. That's, you know, it's yeah. such a... Yeah. I, and when you think about kind of what it truly means to kind of have somebody who is kind, it's it's facilitating and yeah. aiding. It's not kind of... Yeah. It's, yes. I wanted to ask you, because, like, you were talking about um, uh, the poetry and uh, Robin brought up the poetry in your work and you've mentioned different poets. And, like, what do you love to read? Like, who... Who are your favourite poets to kind of... But for kind of all moods, really, not just for consolation or for kind of mm. some, like, spiritual guidance, but just what do you read, like, what poetry do you read for pleasure? And I, 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 poetry's become, in a, in a way, my kind of scripture. As, as, a, as a priest, I had to read the Divine Office every day, so you read large tracts of the Bible and the Psalter, and I kind of... Um, I no longer do that, but but I like to spend you know a half hour to an hour in the morning, reading um, 
poetry and I actually read anthologies of poetry because I like a variety and there's a wonderful publishing house up in the Lake District called Blood Axe. Oh um, yeah. yeah, Blood Axe Book of Women Blood Poets, a- yeah. my yeah. A-level uh, text. Yeah, right. yeah. <laughs> yeah well, well they, uh, I love um, the things I pick up there. I have a number of people I, I return to. Um, I, I love Philip Larkin, um, who was a bit of an old, sad old guy in many ways. But the thing I like about Larkin, and the thing that probably touches me, and I think it's in most art, is that his his melancholy about the passing of time, his definition of art, is, is trying, to, trying to hold it before it goes. Um, it's, it's swifter than a weaver's beam, life. Uh, and that's the book of Job. It just goes, I'm looking back, my God, where... Where did it go? I mean, why was it? Why is it over so quickly? And I love that in Larkin. Um, he he greatly um, feared and hated the thought of death. He didn't have a happy death. He wrote a great poem uh, called Obad or Dawn, which is about his fee wakes at three in the morning, and he's and the lights creeping in, and he sees what's always there, um, death coming for him. Um, but he wrote these lovely, lovely wistful poems about the passing of time. Um, I love a line in a poem of his about looking through a girlfriend's auto, um, auto, autograph, you know, those autograph books, albums, and seeing an, uh, uh, and another photograph album, seeing, seeing a picture of her, um, and the fact that she looks so out of date <laughs> just pierces his heart. And I, I look at old photographs myself with the same... Uh, with the same kind of feeling of longing that these people are over, the fashions are over, and the fact that we are in the midst of this extraordinary churning of time. I'll be over soon. Um, uh, The 60s generation is over. I lived through all of that. Everything is just flowing. We're in flow, in flux. Um, And the great poets capture that, the wistfulness of it. It's one reason why I love Alan Bennett. I quote Alan Bennett. Um, he's been writing Elegy. The Elegy is is the lament of the passing of time. And he's got a lovely phrase in one of his diaries when he says he's always been waving the same hanky. <laughs> uh, um, th- there's a, 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 a little verse I found on a friend's refrigerator, um, a, 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 a young woman who'd been re- recently widowed, and it's from Kathleen Rain. Um, if I could turn upon my finger the bright ring of time, the now of then, I would bring back again. Oh, wow. And, you know, that you get that in the poet. You, you, we all have these longings to uh, maybe to repeat something and do it better, but simply to bring them back, to have them in the chair again. Um, to have them coming in the door saying, I'm home, horrible day at school, uh, I need a beer, that kind of thing. The now of then. And for some reason, even as a wee boy, I was obsessed with that idea. Maybe maybe I got it from the movies because I loved um, the the flashbacks at the end of a movie. Um, do you remember the end of the movie of The Deer Hunter? Um, when you get oh. clips, yeah. Yeah, yeah, you, yeah. You get clips of the dead clips of what was um, and, and I think that's a pretty human affliction and the great artists capture it before it's gone um, and poetry's done it for me and there's a lot of poetry in that book that doing that anyway 
We've run out of time, oh, so sorry. just I say blethered too much. No, not at no, all. Not at all. Mm. Blethered. Uh, we, we've got well, the, the people would like to. The, there's, there's obviously there's. We'll, we'll put up the uh, conversation that uh, we had yesterday um, in Waterstones in Piccadilly, and uh, hopefully we can do this again. Maybe when we're up in Edinburgh. Sure, I would like to. Yeah. There's a lot more to talk about, but waiting for the last bus is uh, is out now. I wanted to know. Oh, can I just ask you one thing? <laughs> I, I keep reading different bits of about the Book of Revelations. What's the best version that I can pick up? Because it just sounds so uh, petrifying and hideous. The King James. The King James Version. You mean what translation? Uh, I think always the trouble with a lot of translations of the Bible, um, if they try to modernize it, is because they want you to try and take it literally seriously. Whereas if you get it in the King James, um, that that kind of rotundity, um, it does, you, you, you realize how, you know, what a spooky book it is. And he, I mean, it's almost as though he was on something. The, the visions that he's seeing, uh, the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Um, uh, no, no, it's it, it's astounding. And of course, it prompted a lot of mad religion. Um, the kind of um, uh, the return religion. It's very strong in the states. The end of the world. They constantly get the date wrong. Do, do you remember a wonderful thing series called Beyond the Fringe? Yeah. Um, yeah. And there's a, there's a scene in it when a bunch of eschatologists go up a hill um, because they finally crack the code. They know when he's coming back, when the world is going to end. And they go up the hill and they sit and they start chanting, Now is the end. Now is the end. And then they wait. Oh, well. Same time tomorrow, chaps. <laughs> <laughs> Richard Holloway, thank you very much. Yeah, thank yeah. you. Good. I want to say thank you to Keith Jones, Tom Pearson, Andrew McLean, or McLean, however you choose, Russell Parker, Neil Riddick, Ian Robinson, Tim Reeves, and Emma Colville. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network. Josie Robbins' book shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions. Mm-hmm.